Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Almighty God, deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have seen William Peter Blady's film from 1973 entitled The Exorcist, which was based on a book which was based on a a true story about the possession of a child. Uh, It's a fascinating film because it's a direct attack on skepticism and cynicism. Because in the film, the uh, Roman Catholic priest is a a bedraggled and defeated and faithless and uh, skeptical person. And the uh, young agnostic mother uh, brings his brings her demonically possessed uh, daughter to this priest who uh, who doesn't know what to do because he doesn't have a category for supernatural involvement and for dark power and uh, cosmic wickedness. And uh, and eventually uh, the priest, as well as the mother, as well as the little girl, are all brought into a much better place. Uh, and uh, it's, it doesn't end perfectly, but it ends pretty well. And uh, but I love the, uh, the the genius of the film, even if it's disturbing, because the genius of the film is look, there's more going on in the world than you think, and there's more to evil than you think. Uh, and uh, Mark chapter one is certainly about that reality. Mark chapter one is about a new exorcist who causes a great stir and demonstrates a unique power over the darkest elements that the universe can produce. And in the first chapter of Mark, there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of dialogue. And I encourage us to listen to the dialogue tonight. Listen to the dialogue. Um, because lots of entities are speaking. The demons are speaking, the exorcist is speaking, and the audience is speaking. So we're going to do that tonight. We're going to listen to demons, uh, we're going to listen to the exorcist, and we're going to listen to the audience. Uh, Regarding the demons, this is from verse 21. I encourage you to follow along. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, this is the first recorded miracle in Mark's gospel, and I want to just say it's quite a a contrast from the first miracle that we read about in John's gospel. John's gospel, it's all water to wine, everybody's having a good time. Uh, This is a little darker and a little different, and uh, Mark goes uh, goes in, in a dark direction deliberately because he's trying to send a message, and the message is this, that Jesus, Jesus is the evil crushing exorcist that we've been awaiting. He is the one who has power even over the unseen death devilish uh, forces that uh, compel uh, so much of human experience. So uh, so the, the setting is fascinating. It's a sacred setting. So they're on the Sabbath, the text says, the Sabbath day, which is set aside for holy purposes and sacred contemplation. And they're in a holy place on a holy day. They're in the synagogue. They're all meeting there to do what we're doing tonight, actually. They're there to sing. They're there to pray. They're there to hear scripture. They're here to hear. They're, they are there to hear a sermon. 
And so they're, they're in the midst of their liturgy, and, and in the midst of the liturgy, somebody screams out, but they're not screaming with their own voice. It's the voice of an unclean spirit. Now, uh, that is a way of saying, uh, a Bible way of saying, that, uh, that the evil, evil, uh, always seeks to bond with a human being, to enmesh itself within a human being to the point that that human being, in terms of their totality and their personality, is overcome and overrun so that that person no longer lives but is lived by some other agency. Uh, and this is just how evil operates, by the way. It, uh, it always seeks to attach itself to you in order to become your master and make you its servant. This was expressed uh, very hauntingly in words from Genesis. And you remember Cain, the firstborn child of Adam and Eve, who uh, went, went, went a bad way, you know, had problems. And, um, and right before he killed his brother, he was very resentful because God didn't accept his salad offering. So no fruit salad for, for God. And, and, uh, Cain was mad and God confronted him, had an intervention with Cain. Do you remember that? I mentioned this a few months ago in my sermon series regarding Joseph, but, uh, um, the English translations always destroy this. Uh, they destroy the visceral nature of it because translators are terrified of political incorrectness. But uh, what the English translation says, uh, that God says to Cain, is something like this. Sin crouches at your door, but you must master it. Yeah, not really. What it really is saying is something like this. Uh, sin is likened to a predatory animal, a predatory animal that is crouching at your door, waiting to mate with you in order to create something hellish out of that union. It wants to give birth to hell on earth through you. So sin is waiting to bond with you, to connect with you, and eventually to eclipse you as a person, but to use you as a vessel for the powers and darkness of hell. Well, um, possession, possession is the ultimate expression of that union. When that union is complete, a person is entirely possessed by the dark forces of the world. And what's fascinating, though, is how a dark force can say something utterly true. And that's what happens in this passage. The unclean spirit speaks. He confesses two things. One, he confesses that Jesus is destructive, which is quite true. Uh, he perceives Jesus as dangerous, not as meek and mild. And when it comes to sheer evil, Jesus is quite dangerous. And Jesus came, to quote the book of Acts, to destroy the works of the devil. And so he evidences that concern. Are you here to destroy us? And then he makes one other confession. He confesses that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Holy One. So the word holy means to be set apart or sacred or clean. And I want you to, to notice then what the demon, what the unclean spirit is saying. He's saying that in the midst of this holy day, Sabbath day, in the midst of this holy place, the synagogue, you are the Holy One. Uh, you are the one that is completely untainted, unstained. And notice who's saying that the unclean spirit says that. So the unclean spirit is threatened by him who is clean, him who is the Holy One of God. He is the untainted, undamaged Messiah. And because of that, to quote St. James, the demons believe and tremble. They tremble. And this demon is trembling. And uh, But the point of the utterance is something like this. Even the most malevolent forces of the world, the things that we can't see, the things that often control or cajole, even those things which seek out the demise of our movement and of your life and your children, that thing, with knees or without knees, will bow the knee uh, to the one King of kings and Lord of lords. That there is a voice that stops the madness. There is a power beyond the unseen powers of darkness. And so they confess Jesus rightly as the Holy One of God. Now, 
The great critique from our uh, all too uh, wise and self-sufficient and self-congratulatory age of sophistication is something like this. Well, this is Bronze Age mythology. This is how people used to explain away mental illness. Now, I have no doubt that there were mental illnesses in the ancient world that were understood to be demonic possession. This just isn't among them. This one is not among them because this demon has its own voice and gives utterance to something of eternal uh, uh, veracity. You are the Holy One of God. So this is, a, this is actual uh, demonic possession of a person. And it's important to note that Jesus had a nuanced and multidimensional perspective of evil. He was not a simpleton when it came to evil. He understood that evil is sourced both from within and from without. It comes from you. It comes from your parents. It comes from whatever you've inherited. It comes uh, laced in your DNA. But, but it also comes from the outside cosmic world, that he had a, he had a broader view of evil. You know, most people can assert that evil arises within us, right? The Buddha said it comes from too much attachment, and you would be less attached, and you'd be less evil. Freud said it comes from neuroses, and if you uh, discovered the roots of them, you'd become less neurotic. Uh, Brene Brown says it comes from a lack of self-acceptance, and if you just hugged yourself more, had other people hug you, you would feel better. Um, maybe. A Christianity responds with a yes and. Yes, all that's true. Even some of Brene Brown. Yes, it's all true. But, but it's just beyond that as well. Yes, it is your damage. Yes, it is your broken psychology and your broken brain and your broken heart, all of it. But yet, evil um, is beyond our damage. Evil has a cosmic and paranormal dimension. St. Paul calls it the principalities and powers. He also says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, suggesting that the atmosphere between people or between institutions can easily be corrupted by this dark, malevolent force and energy, this dynamic, this reality. So when it comes to evil, a Christian cannot say either the devil made me do it, foregoing human agency, can't say the devil made me do it, but nor can you say the devil's not involved. Uh, because we believe in principalities and powers that haunt this present darkness. So uh, I, I say we should listen to the demons and listen to what the demons are saying about this unique one from Nazareth. Point two, listen to the exorcist. This is verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. Uh, notice that Jesus expels the unclean spirit with a sentence. He didn't mix a potion. Uh, he didn't argue with it. He just said, Shut up and get out, and it obeyed him. So he is demonstrating that his words, notice he didn't even pray, Lord, I pray that this young man would be freed from evil corruption. No, he just said the word himself based on his own legitimacy, and that was enough to send the uh, destructive force from this person's body. Uh, now, I think that's uh, remarkable, but it also has a trajectory and, a, and a, pa a history in the life of Jesus because it happened before in the desert whenever Jesus was tested by the devil who was constantly trying to get him to pole vault Calvary and go straight to glory. Don't die. Instead, just be successful. That was always the temptation to Jesus. Just be successful. Um, but Jesus said no time and time again, but didn't just say no. He said, it is written, and then spoke a word from sacred scripture, 
which sent the devil a running. Uh, and so the, the, this is in a way unsurprising because Jesus is himself described by John as the logos, the word of God, that is God's articulation, God's wisdom that is written into the fabric of every stitch of creation, but manifesting himself in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And, uh, and so um, this one created the world with articulation, with speech, and this same one can make a new creation with speech. He can create with words. He can reclaim with words. And that's what we're seeing in this passage, the exorcist who has the power of the word to chase out the darkness. And in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in some ways reclaiming uh, the authority that was granted to us in creation, but authority that we let drop away. You know, we were made to be exorcists. You were made to be an exorcist. What do I mean by that? Well, you may remember that in the uh, Edenic prologue of the Bible, the Adam character is given a particular authority. And this comes from uh, Genesis 1. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over, last bit, every creeping thing. Well, what was Adam's first problem? He listened to the creeping thing. He didn't take authority over it. What should he have done? He should have killed it, right? Crushed its head even if it bit his heel. But he didn't. Instead, to quote Romans 1, he worshipped the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever, and through that created an inverted relationship with himself, with his wife, with his God, with his creation. All of it broke down because he failed to be the exorcist that he was created to be. Uh, and the second Adam then reverses the trend of the first Adam. The second Adam demonstrates a rightful authority over evil. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent and... Again, to quote Acts, destroy the works of the devil. Jesus saw his whole life, in certain ways, as an exorcism. He certainly sees his cross as an exorcistic act. Um, the cross can be understood in a variety of biblical ways. It can be understood as a substitutionary act, as a victorious act, as an act of, uh, of moral uh, uh, example. It can also be understood as an exorcism. So at the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, the ruler of this world, meaning Satan, is about to be cast out, referring to his cross as uh, an act of exorcism. And so we listen to the exorcist who has the authority of the spoken word, that his authority and what he says has power over the unseen realm to banish evil and to restore that which was lost and broken. And also, we should listen to the crowd, listen to the audience. This is verse 27. And they were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Notice the connection between uh, his authority and his teaching. It wasn't just about the presence of Jesus. It's also about what Jesus says. And it's interesting that it was during Jesus's teaching in the synagogue that the demon unmasks itself. It's like it couldn't bear the resonances of truth, couldn't handle it. Um, you know, some people who utter some words are so in tune with the truth that they show authority over evil. I've been thinking a lot about the racial tensions in the United States. And Martin Luther King Jr. was one of these people who not only could coin a phrase, but could use a phrase so powerfully that he could expel evil. He really could. It was remarkable. When he said, for example, in D.C., that we ought to be judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character, he broke evil apart. He dissolved it. Uh, 
there was something remarkable about the principalities and powers that uh, something happened to them. Something shifted in the heavenlies whenever words like that were were uttered because he was in line with Jesus Christ and he was in line with Holy Scripture against his culture. And that had a great effect. Um, Well, in this story, at the very beginning of Jesus' public life, I want you to note the demons and the churchgoers both find an odd agreement. Jesus of Nazareth has a unique authority. They'd never seen anything like this before. You know, there are lots of stories in the uh, ancient world about exorcism rites that were created by rabbis. Many of them involved potions or certain prayers or uh, almost kind of an incantation-esque method of ridding people of evil. Jesus didn't need any of it. His authority and his words were enough. And the crowd noticed this, noticed his unique authority. And at the end of Jesus's life, he shows that he agrees with them. You may remember in one of the great commissions, and every gospel has its own version of it, in Matthew 28, Jesus says to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that mean? It means what the crowds uh, thought it meant in this passage, that he has all authority on earth. That is everything you can see. He has authority over blind eyes, over leprous skin, over dead little girls who are waiting to be raised to life. He has authority over all that. He also has authority over everything in heaven, all the things that you can't see, including the principalities and powers that control and cajole our lives. Uh, He has authority over those things, the things we can comprehend and the things we can't. So we listen to the demons, we listen to the exorcists, we listen to the crowd. Now, uh, some concluding applications regarding evil and our relationship to it, considering each category that I've previously mentioned. First, the word of the demons You know, there is an implicit invitation in this passage to adopt the paranormal perspective of Christ. Uh, We, you know, generally look for evil only within one sphere, that is the human sphere, human beings. I encourage us to be more spiritually minded. I know there are some Christians who are so spiritually minded, they're no earthly good. I just don't know a whole lot of them. I know a whole lot of people who are far more materialistic and are functional Sadducees. Why do I call them that? Because the Sadducees, were like, I mean, they loved liturgy and they loved church and tradition, but they were functional atheists, at least in some ways. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in heaven or hell, angels, demons, none of the supernatural material of the Old Testament. They gutted the Old Testament to mostly just legal material because they were liturgists and they just loved rules. But uh, whether or not they, um, they understood the fullness of revelation, it seems that they didn't. But I find that when conflict arises, at least for me, my instinctive rush is to simply address the natural. That is, identify the obvious cause, usually another person, certainly not me, and address it. Address the obvious cause. Um, But, friends, if we have that impulse, we are neither believing nor behaving like Christians. We are, when all the chips are down, paranormalists. Let us not be less supernaturally inclined than Jesus Christ or than the word that testifies to Jesus Christ. I mean, this isn't just Jesus here. This is Paul who says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That whenever you have a war with somebody, there's more going on, right? Because you're never just the sum of your parts. It's you and the other person and the dynamic between you and the other person. And so let me talk about this in light of praying. So when you have, um, whenever somebody acts malevolently toward you, uh, you could plot. You could write the perfect email. 
you could confront them at exactly the right moment, find their weak spot and attack it in response to their attack against you. Or, or you could think about this from like a Christian perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stick with me. So like you could say, okay, this thing the person did is real and it is part of them. But there's a dynamic between me and this other person. And I need an authority that is higher than the dynamic. And that can't be me because I'm in the mix of it. You know, yeah. So it has to be God. You have to sort things out with God before you can deal with your adversary rightly. Because you have to deal with the atmosphere. And he's the prince of the power of the air. So if you will, it's a bit of a stretch, but not too much. You need to deal with the air. You need to deal with the atmosphere between you and this person. You need to deal with the dynamic. And the only way to do that is you first start with God. Because if you start with God, you'll find that your own dark impulses are exhumed, examined, and you begin to be set free from some of their edges, set free from some of their power. Yeah, And then you can deal with the other person in a way that's far more restorative and far more filled with justice and compassion and grace but you have to begin with god so be a supernaturalist when it comes to evil in your own experience okay but also listen to the word of the exorcist we need an exorcist and we really do because evil by its nature hides itself because hideousness has no appeal to people that are made in the image of god so it has to disguise itself as a partial good by the way this is how evil always acts in the garden of eden The serpent advocates not Satanism. The serpent advocates wisdom and knowledge. Sounds good. In this passage, the demoniac hides amongst parishioners in a synagogue. Right? He's not in a meth den. He's in a synagogue. Evil loves a blur. Evil loves a lack of distinctions. So here's a fun story from Harvard, of course, um, which decided a few years ago, but they canceled it, uh, but originally decided to host a satanic mass, which is created to denigrate different elements of Christian worship. Well, the president of the club hosting the satanic mass said this to the local newspaper. You'll love this. Our purpose is not to denigrate any religion or faith which would be repugnant to our educational purposes and goals, but instead to learn and experience the history of different cultural practices. I mean, talk about a line. Um, But it's a blur. It's a blur. And Christians are not to be governed by a blur, but by a clear-talking Christ, who sometimes is too clear-talking for my own comfort zone, to be honest. Um, But he is clear, and he even creates delineations a la Genesis 1. We have delineations and distinctions everywhere between heaven and earth, between land and sea, sun and moon, man and woman, good and evil. The line runs down them all. And Christians are people who are governed by a clear-talking Christ and by his word. That is the word of Jesus. And there is power in the word of Jesus to end the blur, to end the haze. It helps us to distinguish between truth and error, goodness from falsehood. And the word of Jesus is expulsory. If you want to ever shed light on a situation, bring Jesus into that. And you make it discomforting light, but you'll get some light that can have power to dispel the darkness. And this is really what conversion, in a way, is about. When you um, bond with Jesus in faith and in baptism, what happens is um, the other old bonds that you had to the negativity and the dark forces of the world begins to be exhumed and loses some of its attachment to you because you now have a new connection, right? Um, and that that's the goal, is that you would bond with somebody who can help you to see Uh, You can bond with somebody who can expel the darkness from you and from the world around you.
So listen to the word of the exorcist who has the power of the darkness. And lastly, listen to the word of the audience here, particularly as they confess the authority, the unique authority of Jesus, because they saw in him a cosmic dimension. This is more than just another prince, another prophet, another priest. And they were right. He has authority over that which is darkest and dimmest. And evil, friends, is a dying dictator. Evil is a dying dictator, a sagging, bitter old man on life support whose ultimate demise was already decided at the cross and at the empty tomb. Even the most malevolent of forces will be compelled to acknowledge an eternal fact. This is the Holy One of God who comes to kill the dying dictator. When the unclean spirit looks at our Messiah, he is certain of his own demise and prophesies about his own unmaking. He asks, have you come to destroy us? And to turn a phrase, you're damn right. Amen. They took your life. They could not.